former prisoner and inmate. I'm at New York City. Got a piece of the pie. Told you once, told you twice that we only got one life. Way to achieve success after prison. He's gonna share his story with us right now. Diamond shine, best at night. So, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Gunnar Allen Lindblom. I'm a writer, I'm a novelist, and the CEO and owner of Art Thing Apparel. I write novels about a mafia family, which kind of has an interesting backstory to it. I'm going to get to that in a second. And then I'm going to talk about how I ended up in prison for 13 years. I'm going to talk about my Lindblom Chronicles, which are a series of short stories that I write about my life before prison, about growing up in a mafia family, how I got to be like that, in that. Let me preface this, I was never a mob boss or high up ranked anybody, I was just a low level grunt associate. However, I did move in circles with very high level mob guys, and I'll get to that story in a second, I'll tell you how that happened, which is really a very unique story because normally a kid in my position would never run the elbows with big shot mob bosses and high ranking mafioso, but I did only because I was born into a family, and then I'll get into that in a second. So, let me start at the beginning. I got out of prison a couple years ago after 13 years in prison. And I was went to prison for extortion, bank robbery, armed robbery, kidnapping, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you couldn't even make a uglier, you know, rap sheet than I had. Didn't kill, rape, or anything like that. It was just, you know, I was on a rampage. I was on drugs, I was gambling. I, I didn't care anymore about life. So when you get to that point where you stop caring about life, I mean, you'll do anything. So that's where I was and it ended up with me getting indicted for 17 capital crimes. Couldn't beat any of them, so it's a complete agreement. There was no cooperation or nothing like that. I was offered a chance to cooperate with the FBI, and I told them, you know, get F, I'm no rat, whatever. And then uh, that was the end of it. The guy gave me his card and he's like, you know, if you, you want to talk, give me a call. I said, eh. So 13 years later, I get out. What happened in prison was almost like a story in itself. I got there, you know, like I said, I was really out there. I get to prison. Right away, I um, got a chip on my shoulder. I know I'm going away to prison for a long time. So <sighs> what happened was some kid, some black kid, when I was at church, of all things, went into my cell and stole two pies out of my, my little box, right? And this disrespect, I couldn't take it. So what happened was I came back. I saw it was gone. I got freaked out, I walked into the unit, the county jail. I got one little black and white TV on the table and everybody's around watching. I walked over there, grabbed the TV, and I was like, <laughs> smashed it. And I said, which one of you bitches stole my pies? I said, now I bought your soul. Who's gonna man up and do it like a man? Who's gonna come get, I put my box of store on, on the table. I said, oh dear, one of you bitches come get it like a man. Here I am, stand right here, let's see if you can do it. Now the whole unit freezes up, gets quiet. Everybody sitting there. Yeah, had a pin drop. And um, it wasn't so racially segregated or anything like that. A lot of prisons, county jail. But a couple of white guys kind of got behind me who didn't like the black dude. 
And I, I didn't care. I would have smashed anyone at this point. So basically, I'm freaking out. TV smash. I'm challenging anyone to a fight. And so they locked us down because they saw something was happening. So they lock us down and then they let us back out. And they came in and said, what happened? Cops to me. And I said, somebody stole from me. Yeah, like, we'll calm down, blah, 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 blah. So after they let us back out, I look over and I see this freaking little black kid, right? He's standing there. He's got a razor in his hand and shaking. So I walk up to him, man. I said, hey, man, why are you shaking? I didn't have nothing to do with it, man. I didn't have nothing to do with it. It was my bunkie. It was my bunkie. Now, Bunky was this little loudmouth, light-skinned cat. kind of muscle-bound, just always freaking talking trash, always talking gangster, always talking hard. Weighed about buck fifty. You know, he's muscle-bound, but I could tell he was soft. I could tell he was all bark. So, I went up in his cell, opened the door. Everybody saw me going and was watching. I walk in the cell, and I was like, hey, man, you take pies out of my freaking thing? He goes, no, nah, man. I said, well, I'm going to check your box. And he goes, oh, man, now I feel disrespected. I said, you feel disrespected? Knocked him out, caved his face in one shot, hit him right here. Just smashed, shattered his orbital socket, all that. Knocked him right out, hits the ground. So I grab him by the ankle, drag him out of the unit. There's a staircase that goes up to the upper stairs. I drag him out, there's a blood trail out of his cell. Knocked out, leave him right there under the stairs so the cops in the tower couldn't see him. I said, anyone else want to try to steal from him? Anyone else got the balls? This is what's going to happen. So he's knocked out. Eventually, uh, the cops saw him laying there and locked down, like D unit, locked down, locked down, and we all locked down. Of course, everybody ratted on me. You know, they go around and they give like these called kites to, to see if people will say what they saw, you know, and freaking half the unit, you know, wrote down, oh, Alan Bloom knocked him out. So they take me to the hole and uh, I ended up, you know, 90 days in the hole. It's not that big a deal. I mean, whatever, it's 90 days. Actually, I think it was 30 days. But there was a douchebag cop there and, um, I got into it. I can't remember his name. He was a total freaking douchebag. Man, this harassed us and messed with us all the time. I was not in the mood, so I basically told him to F off and whatever. Then one day I had to go to court. This is funny. And when they bring me back from court, because I was a high-level, high-profile inmate, I was classified as a level nine. So they put me in transport in my own little cell. Now, on the counter, yeah, there's all these big holding cells with, like, 20 guys in each one. There's hundreds of guys. There's chaos. And there's me. And I got this... Literally like the old movies, black and white striped jumpsuit on. And when they transported me, they shackled me and everything like that. So all these people are like, man, who the hell's that dude? Freaking, you know, Charles Manson in there? So one day I get back to court. They, I got another charge, gave me a million dollar bond. At one point, my bond was 5.725 million. They just, uh, the charge is a million dollar bond, million dollar bond. Hey, I acted like I was freaking mass murder or something. So there was no getting out. At one point, I had somebody who was going to try to bomb me out, and they posted, but they, they bumped my bond up, and it was, it was, I was never going out. And they straight up told me, you're not. And then, you know, the thing is that the, the prosecutor said he, he is the means to flight, excuse flight risk. What the hell are you talking about, a flight risk? What am I, freaking Pablo Escobar? I didn't have no freaking money. Anyway, so come back from the court. This is all going somewhere to try to get, you know, to understand my story and how I ended up in this position, kind of where I am today. So I get back to the cell, and the strange thing about these little holding cells, I got these big plexiglass windows, and you're in there, and it's really acoustic. So I was started like banging beats on it. Boom, 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 boom. And all these freaking inmates there, all these like intakes, people who are just got arrested and waiting to get into it, they're like laughing, you know? And, I'm, and it's really not boom, boom. And it's not like it's just a huge bass drum kicking in there. 
And uh, of course, they tell me to stop. Got that little microphone on the thing, like, hey, limbo, knock it off. I'm like, boom, even louder. Boom, 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 boom. And, and they're like, finally, this lieutenant or captain comes out. He's got all gold badges and crap. I don't know what the, you know his rank was, but he was like the boss. He comes out, he stands on the other thing, on the same thing. Now he's right there, and I'm right here, and I'm still going boom, 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 boom. And he's he's like, knock it off. I'm like, boom, boom. He goes, you know who I am? I said, man, I don't give a fuck who you are. You know who I am. And so, yeah, I'm not a big cursor, but I'm just repeating what I said. And so. He turns around, he walks away, and eventually got tired of it, and I sat down. All of a sudden, they come with a freaking, like, their little riot gear squad. About six, eight of them. Got all their riot gear and crap. And they all come in there, and they're standing there, and they're like, open cell, whatever. And it opens up. Now, I know where this is going. So I'm not going out without a fight. Now, there's no way they're going to freaking, I know how they work. They'll cuff you up, beat your ass, and then, you know. So I'm like, if you're going to freaking beat my ass, I'm gonna get a couple licks into. So, so what's up? I jump back. I'm like, I'm ready to go, and like step out. I'm like, nope. You step in. I said, listen, I'll calm down. I'm cool, but I'm not cuffing up. I know how that ends. And they said, come out. I'm like, nope. So, one of the things is like, let him have it. It was his underling. So the guy's got the taser, right? Bam! Hits me with the taser. But I'm like matrixed it, man. I saw it coming at the last second, so I duck. And only one of the prongs hit me in the throat. And I'm like, like I felt the shock, but I was like, bang. And I knocked the wire off. And I was like, I said, like, what's up? You know, I, I act like I was Superman. And they were like, holy crap, you just took the taser. And then, so they shut the door, shut the door. They shut the Now I go back, sit down on, on the uh, slab. And uh, I remember there was an old newspaper in there. I just started reading it, just something to do. And then I like curl up on a slab and try to fall asleep. I don't know how much time passed, but eventually I hear the door go, oh, here we go. Thought maybe they're taking me back to my cell in the hole. No, they had the rest squad back. This time they're like, step out. I'm like, nah, step in. I'm not going, you know, I'll be cool. I'll walk back to my cell. Just, you know, let me walk back to the cell. I don't want a problem, whatever. So this big dude steps aside and they go, let him have it. And it was a chick or a pepper spray, foghorn one, man. Like a bah, and she <laughs> and nailed me. And oh, it got me, man. Square in the face. Nailed me. So, I mean, it just sucked the wind right out of me. I was like, ah, it's burning, I'm throwing. And they rush in there and freaking bum rush me and cuff me up. But there's cameras on, so they can't bust me up too bad. And this is how they work, Macomb County. This is right outside of Detroit. And they're famous for this. Famous, they've killed guys. And so they cuff me up and they're walking me back. I can barely breathe. And the guy's wrenching on my arm because I'm cuffed. And he's wrenching it. And I'm trying to resist a little bit. I'm like, yo, bro. He's like, stop resisting. I'm like, bro, you're ripping my freaking shoulder outside. Calm down. I'm cuffed up. I'm going. You know, chill out. There's like five of them. One of them's this dude they called the Big Show. They call him the Big Show because he was basically a big giant freaking dude. Like six foot five, 350 pound dude. Another one of those who thought he was tough. So when they get me down the hall and then step into this elevator that takes you to the basement where the hole is, as soon as I step one step in, I took a step in, they hit my head, went, stop resisting, bam, and then they just beat my ass. They beat my ass, you know, for a good 90 seconds, you know, kicking me, stomping me, whatever. Well, there's a corrugated floor, and this huge freaking dude, I actually think the big dude was trying to help me. Like, he wasn't stomping me like the other punk-ass bitches, you know, you know, and the whole time, they're beating my ass. 
and I'm cuffed. I'm going, real tough guys. I don't want you to uncuff me. No, uncuff me. Let's make it even. You're going to go home tonight and tell your freaking wives how you beat up some inmate, how you handled it, how tough you are. I got cuffs on you, freaking bitch. Let's five on one. Let's do this. Me and you, uh, I guess all of you in this, in this little ass spot. So finally, the big dude kind of like dropped a knee on my head and smashed my head against this corrugated metal. And just drop me. This guy's like 350 pounds, man. That was a lot of weight. Imagine having a full freaking weight on my head. It hurt. Right away, I was just like, this is bad. You know, this guy could kill me. You know, squash my head like a grape. And I said, all right, man. All right, man. Give it. Give it. You know, whatever. He said, just calm down, man. Just calm down. I'm calm down. I haven't even done that. I was calm to begin with. Freaking bitches. So anyway, he kind of like got the other ones off me and calmed everybody down. But my head was split open where, where it smashed against this corrugated metal floor. I had to get stitched. Anyway, they get me back to my cell, and they, you know, I got a back against the cell to uncuff, stick me to a little slot and thing. And uh, it was actually bars, like the old time movies. There's a little food slot in the bars. Of course, as soon as they uncuff me, I'm just like, what's up, bitch? Come and get me now. Five on one, you punk ass bitch. You gonna jump on me in there? I'll cuff you, punk ass bitches. Well, they didn't do nothing. They just freaking walked away. But because of that event, this is where I'm getting, is that I ended up in what was considered a level nine inmate which means I never get out of the hole. I'm in there indefinitely. So I'm, I'm fighting these cases, extortion and bank robbery and armed robbery and all these freaking bad stuff. So it took me 17 months, actually, while I was there in the hole. Well, 17 months, I was in the hole, almost a year and a half. I went through all the seasons. It was you know, horrible, hot in the summer. You're just dying, dying, and they're sweating my balls off. Lay, standing there naked, dumping water over me to try to stay alive. And then in the winter, there was frost on the bars. That's how cold it was. It's freezing. Like the heat had broken and you know, they give us one blanket. It was horrible. The, the cops would shake down the cell and like, I had water bags. Like I, I take my shirt, fill up a garbage, couple garbage bags with water, tie the sleeves together and I'd work out. I had to do something to stay alive. So I read books and I worked out. And uh, then they come shake you down when you're like at court or you know at church or something. And then they bust it with the water bags and dump the water all over your bed. You come back, you get everything wet, and it's wintertime, and it's freezing. They take your pictures. I had pictures of things that kept me alive. I, you know, looking at my girlfriend and my, you know, pictures of things that I had and, you know, hope, giving me hope. And they dump water all over it, man. Like, dry them all off. Just bitch-ass stuff, you know. A bunch of small dick bitches who, who get a job like that just so they can uh, bully people, basically, because they got, maybe they got bullied in high school. Maybe they, whatever the case. I don't know. So, moral of the story is, while I was in the hole... I was reading. I began reading. Now, I was a big reader to begin with. That's the interesting part. I love to read anyway. So they would come around this cart. I'd grab books and I'd read. And I was just a voracious reader, right? 99% of the time. Well, maybe not 99, but 90% of the time. Even the big name readers like Grisham and like Sidney Sheldon and stuff. I wasn't impressed. I wasn't impressed by the story. Some of them were okay, but they could have been better. So I began in my mind, because I knew I had this creative gift. I started thinking, you know what? I'm going to start writing. And I didn't have the writing material. I didn't have pen and paper or typewriter or nothing like that. But I'd lay there on my bunk for hours, staring at the ceiling for days. I'd start writing these stories in my mind, coming up with characters and plots, conflicts and resolutions. Good one. Really good one. And over that 17-month period, I wrote three of my novels in my mind without, without ever putting pen to paper. I would lay there and just for months and months. And I'd interrupt the process by reading some books. Maybe if I thought of a, the genre, the genre of the 
story that I wanted to write, I would try to get some books of that genre and read it, just kind of get my mind in the realm of that genre. Not that I was plagiarizing or planning to copy anything, but I just wanted to get into that world and maybe learn some of the lingo and stuff. Because I've written books, uh, military books. I've written, you know, action suspense, like Jason Bourne type books. I've written sports-themed dramas, mafia dramas, obviously. I've written even a comedic romance. So I'm very cross-genre. I, I don't stick to one genre. I don't put myself in a box and say that's the type of writer I am. I have the ability to write anything and write it good. Anyone who reads my books, um, they'll know. They'll, they'll back that up. You can go read my reviews on Amazon or To Be A King, volume one and two. They're very big books. Um, they're both over 500 pages. So they're uh, thick books, but it's a very complex, long story. That's what I write. Very complex, plot-driven stories. But a lot of people will read them and go, this is very character-driven too, which is rare to have both plot and character-driven. But uh, you'll have to check them out. And if you have any doubt, just read the reviews. They're all organic. They're all real. So anyway, what happened was I got sentenced to 13 to 50 years. And I ended up, you know, going away. That was it. And it was my life changed avenue. And of course, I get to prison. And, you know, my girlfriend was barely even there for me because she's so uh, angry and upset with, you know, what happened. I left her with a big house. Um, another thing, man. It's interesting how people like haters, people that from my own neighborhood or knew me from, like, high school or something. And I, I write these stories. And then I suddenly, they're like, that ain't true. Just, oh, I don't remember none of that. I'm like, I didn't see you since eighth grade. How the hell would you know anything about the intimate details of my life, especially doing criminal exploits with my mafia family? You think I was just broadcasting that to the neighborhood idiots? And these guys are idiots. I've had a few haters and stuff like that. And it's funny. Um, they, they've said I was, you know, all robbing old ladies and, and um, you know, just junkie, desperate junkie. And I was like, well, the truth is I had a $200,000 house, which was beautiful. And I had two brand new cars and a garage full of toys, jet ski, four-wheeler, jet boat, snowmobiles. I had it all. You know, and I'm ninja the whole night. And that was one of the reasons I ended up, you know, in prison. Because I had this lifestyle to maintain. When I couldn't afford to maintain it, I did desperate stuff. You know, drugs didn't help. But nobody knew I was on drugs. Not even my own girlfriend, who I was with for 13 years. I'd lived with, knew I was on drugs. Nobody knew. And I had a beautiful house. This beautiful, nice house on the block in St. Clair, Service, Michigan. Real nice uh, suburb uh, north of Detroit. But anyway, so she kind of left me for dead. Almost, you know, sent me 20 bucks here and there. I had no family. Nobody cared. Even the family that I was family with. Even my own grandparents kind of were so angry with me. They didn't write me for the first year or two. Crazy. Uncles and aunts. A lot of uncles and aunts who, who were always kind of envious of me and my sister because we were outgoing and gregarious and everybody liked us and the life of the party. We were funny. We were articulate, whatever, talented and gifted. Their kids weren't. So they just kind of envy manifested itself in sort of you know, just just not um, reticent, if you will, which is basically where they were, like didn't want nothing to do with us. So I didn't expect anything from them, and uh, not that I cared, but I do care. I mean, I care that it would have been nice to have my family support me. And even to this day, they don't talk to me for no reason. I'm doing great. I'm successful, and and you would think they would, uh, you know, reach out, but they're too good for that. That, that would uh, that would hurt them. So anyway, I did have a cousin, his name was Joe. He was an ex-wise guy from Detroit. He was a hustler, everything from drugs and everything. Like that. He got kind of the same road as me, uh, got involved in drugs and stuff like that, went down the wrong path. But he was a hustler, but he wasn't a gangster. I'll give him that sort of thing. I was more of a gangster. I did gangster crap. I was, I was violent. I mean, I was very violent, usually towards people who deserved it. But Joe wasn't violent. He was just a hustler. So 
eventually his family kind of did an intervention and they told him, you know, you got to stop, otherwise you got to get out. So he moved to Chicago, met an amazing woman, got married, started a, a job, makes, you know, 150 grand a year. You know, he's a headhunter, you know, finds jobs with people in the, like Wall Street and stuff. But anyway, he reaches out to me when I first went to prison. And it's a crazy story because about a year before I went to prison or something, maybe two, he stopped talking to me because I stole 10 pounds of weed from him. I didn't really steal it, he just gave it to me and I just you know, wouldn't pay. And I was the kind of guy who was just like, you know, whatever, what are you gonna do? Even though he's my boy, he's my cousin. He wasn't gonna freaking go to war with me over no 10 pounds. So he kind of was just like, all right, man, that's how you are, just wash my hands of you. And, and that's the kind of scumbag I was at the time. So I'm, st I'm sorry, I, I did rob a lot of drug dealers. And I did do a lot of throwing my own weight around with drug dealers and stuff who would front me weed. And then I'd say, you know, fuck you, get paid. What are you gonna do, you know what I'm saying? I'd maybe throw my family in there and say, you really want to go to war? Most of the time, I was like, whatever, man, get it how you can. What you want to do? If you confront me about it, I'll knock your teeth out. So, and I remember this, there was this big, huge, huge dude, man, big steroided out, muscle bomb dude. He fronted me a bunch of steroids, and I did the same thing with him. And he was asking, like, what's up with this guy, Adam, man? What's up? He's crazy, whatever. I'm like, man, listen, he is crazy. He ain't scared of nothing. And if you try to confront him about it, he's going to freaking knock your teeth out. And this guy's like six foot six, turn around. I see him at the gym with his buddy, this other muscle bomb dude, steroids. These guys are massive steroid heads. And they were really cool. They were like, what's up, Al, man? How you been? You know, what's up with that money, yo? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm working on it, man. I'll give you a call. And that was it. And you couldn't do dick. So Joe reaches out to me and says, I, I was looking in the newspaper and I saw an article in the newspaper about you. How, you know, you got all this trouble and you got, you know, sentenced to 13, 50 years of prison. And you did all this stuff. And he's like, man, the Holy Spirit, God, he said, reached out to me and just told me to reach out to you. I was driving to work and it hit me and I started crying, man. I just felt for you so bad. And God was telling me to be there for you. I don't know why or how, but if there's anything I can do, I don't have a lot of money, but if I can help her, just be there. And he was instrumental to my entire life. And I'll share more about that. But the reason I met my wife, the reason I am here today, all of it is because of him. And so he started sending me a few bucks and, and he sent me money so I could buy paper and pencil. And I started writing. I wrote my first novel. That novel is called Second Chance. It's a sports themed drama. And it's about these two friends who actually become adopted brothers, the black kid and the white kid. They're football superstars. One of them, the white kid is getting recruited to be a middle linebacker. Anyway, all these colleges are after him. But his boy is kind of this smaller black kid He's like, imagine Doug Flutie, a short black kid, but he's a really good athlete. He's great at winning. He's smart. So he, at, at football. So his brother's like, yo, at least colleges want me. I'm not going anywhere unless you give him a scholarship too. And they're like, sorry, dude, we don't, it doesn't work like that. You can't just say, you know, go. So eventually um, his status and rank got so high that the University of Miami ended up saying, hey, well, listen, we'll give your boy a scholarship too if you come, you know, you come play with us. And so... This during like preseason, he comes back to visit his girl on a surprise visit, and he catches well, he catches her with a dude, but it's really not what you think. He flips out and smashes this dude really bad, and the guy ends up dying. So he ends up going to prison for 16 years. But his boy, who he got the scholarship for, goes on to win a national championship at the University of Miami. But then he gets drafted. And as soon as he gets drafted, not a high-level draft, he's got a little bit of money, he gets a big-shot lawyer. And by the way, the name of the main character, you know, the white kid, is, his name is Chance. That's why it's called, the book's called Second Chance. His name is Chance Endo. 
and his boy's name is Omar. And so Omar gets a big shot lawyer on the case and, and opens it up and has the uh, lawyer kind of dig around because he took a plea agreement. He knew he couldn't fight it and beat it. Well, the lab, the toxicology reports had never been presented to a jury or anything like that. So they didn't know, but the kid was like on Coke, GHB, ecstasy, and he's drinking. And the, what happens is if you beat somebody's ass and knock them out so bad you beat their ass, if their heart stops or anything like that, the brain swells. And that's when they brought him to the hospital and pronounced him dead because his brain was swollen. He just got his ass stomped, so they assumed the dude killed him. But the truth is, if you have a heart attack from an overdose, the same result on a CAT scan is the same thing. So this lawyer argued, you know, listen, he may have killed the guy beating his ass. It was very well possible the guy just had a heart attack, man. The, the, the adrenaline and all that. I mean, he was on coke, he was on ecstasy. He was on... So, you know, what's up? Eventually, a judge determines that um, he's right. He's like, it's a 50-50 chance this dude might have died from the drugs and not from his ass beat. Since the guy says chance had served half his time, which was eight years or whatever, they said, 50-50 chance, eight years, I'm going to reset some of the time served and let him out. So now, Omar's this big shot, you know, superstar NFL player, and this guy comes out of prison to his boys, and there's a lot more to it. I'm not going to ruin the story. There's a little love story with the girl, something. There's a secret to that. And uh, it's really funny, too. A lot of funny. But anyway, I wrote that book. I sent it to my cousin, Joe. He read it for, on the train because he lives in Chicago. He said it blew my mind. It just blew my mind. Could not believe how good it was. And then I wrote another book. Next book was the, a military-based genre about a guy's fiction characters, three tours of Vietnam. The first person who ever read it was a Vietnam vet. He was in the cell next to me. I gave it to him. It was an 1,100-page manuscript, handwritten. I gave it to him. I said, hey, man, I always see you reading. He didn't have TV, so he was always reading. I said, I see you always have a book, man, so check out my manuscript. I just finished it yesterday. It's about Vietnam. He's like, oh, I was in Vietnam. I was in Navy CB. I'm like, oh, cool. Hopefully you like it then. Cool. So I give it to him. And then the um, the next morning when they crack for chow, like six in the morning, you know, you're click, 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 and all the cells crack. And I go to step out and boom, this dude's standing there with the manuscript. And I go, I was disappointed because I'm like, that's not, not liked it. And he, I said, oh, man, what happened? You couldn't get into it? And he's like, no, bro, I finished it. What? How did you finish it? It's 1,100 pages. I read 24 hours straight. Couldn't put it down. This is exact words. I'll never forget them. I don't know how you did this, but when you publish this, they're going to talk about it across the country. Now, I don't know who they are, but that's what he said. And I'm like, wow, thanks, man. Really cool. So, and then people started reading it and having the same reaction. And all my books kind of started people having these reactions. Like, wow, this is amazing. In prison, you have some big readers. Big readers. I mean, a lot of people read thousands and thousands of books. That guy told me personally that he's read 10,000 books since he's been down. He's like, I read three, three four, five books a week. So big readers, voracious readers. When people who are voracious readers are very critical about reading, then they read your manuscript and read your book, come back, go, wow, dude, this is the best written book I ever read. Uh, it made, made me feel real good and held a lot of weight, and it made me feel very inspired to keep writing. So that's what I did. So over the next 13 years, I continued to write. Like, my life depended on it. The next book after that is called turntable which is a funny kind of almost comedic drama about this guy and his sister they moved to new york one wants to be an actor another one wants to be a writer and uh everything goes to hell and it's actually a really complex funny i ends up boning this um producer's wife and she gets him in with them they produce the soap opera the guiding light and starts writing material and they ask him to be on the show and he had lost one of his manuscripts at this apartment when he was looking for his sister so this girl in new york trying to find this random dude who she's read as a screenplay and she's like oh my god it's amazing well where, how do i find this guy i need to find him and then all of a sudden you know a couple months later she's watching the guiding light and there he is 
she knows that he just got out of prison. And it's a it's a complex story, a web of holy crap. But then my fourth book was called Dreams World, which is about this kid who moves from a small town in Ohio to Detroit and ends up moving next door to the unofficial ringleader of this little crew called the Dream Team, which is a football team at this high school called Down Behind. And there's like seven superstar football players. They just mash everybody. And this kid kind of gets pulled into their world. He ends up falling in love with the principal's daughter. That creates all kinds of drama. They get into it with the mob. They bust up a mob bar. And then the mob's got them doing these parties for him. And it's funny. It's a funny kind of cute story. My fifth book was a, like a Jason Bourne book called Eagle's Talent about the president's personal assassin. And very complex. If you could think about like Jason Bourne, it's like that. My seventh book was The Lion Chaser. The Lion Chaser is about a young runaway kid who's a grew up messed up and his mother was a crackhead and he ended up in foster care and bouncing around all these foster homes and at some point he ends up stabbing some dude and tries to molest him and, and they put him in this like military style like place camp until he's 21 then he gets a furlough and ends up escaping the furlough and runs off to New York and kind of a financial mastermind business he's super smart he's a genius so he becomes the youngest billionaire in America while he's on the run under a, a false identity and stuff it's crazy story. There's a love story in there too, of course. My eighth novel would have been To Be a King by one and two, and about a fictional Detroit Mafia family. Books are, for me, the easiest ones to write are the ones that you don't have to do research, you don't have to do a bunch of homework for, you just you know, write from the cuff. And that was because I have some history in that background that's whatever. And then my last book that I wrote before I came home, it's called Snowman Chronicles, which is about two cocaine kingpins kid moves from Columbia when he was a little kid, a baby, and his mother was uh, only 14 years old, had him, and they bounce around until they end up in a small town, and then eventually they move to Detroit, where they move down the block from this kid named Titus Tagliano, whose uncle's a connected guy, and they, he ends up becoming friends with them, he's a tough guy, and his name is Jimmy Rios, the main character, he has him selling a little bit of weed and dope, and they become boys, and then they get into the cocaine business, because Jimmy Rios finds out that his uncles and cousin are big cocaine guys, and so they basically connect the mob and the Colombian cartel together, and these two become the main conduit for this huge cocaine distribution operation. And when I mean huge, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars internationally, all over the world. They have like a thousand front businesses. They literally buy a shipping fleet, like seven of those giant freighters that move cargo, they buy them. Now the cartel has the money, and then they move cocaine all over the world with it. And these two guys are the facilitators of the whole thing. They become Canadian diplomats and for the government, and they, they end up involved in Hollywood, and, and they even get the president to star in a movie they produce. It's crazy. So that's my next book that'll be releasing probably this year, sometime this year. Anyway, so that is what happened in prison. You know what? I'm gonna break this up, and I'm going to kind of tell about my times in the street, and I'll get into the Limbloom Chronicles. Kind of now that you know who I am. I'll kind of double back and go to Lindblom Chronicles, kind of explain how I got involved in the streets, how my family kind of pulled me into this life, and how I kind of lived a double life most of my life. And uh, nothing grandiose. I was never any kind of big shot, but I said I had some big shots that I worked for, and uh, I did some pretty crazy stuff. And the way I acted was crazy, too. Not just like street stuff crazy, but how I acted towards these mob guys uh, was crazy. I mean, I didn't know at the time. I didn't know how stupid I was to be disrespectful, or I didn't know, know their big shots. It was like old uncle figures to me, you know? And I was introduced to them as my uncles anyways, and I know them my whole life. So I, you know, I messed with them, and they messed with me, but then it started, don't come down to money, you start, uh, you know, business is business. 
I'm gonna go and uh, upload this and then we'll do another one and uh, I'll tell you more about that. Stay tuned. You know what I'm saying? And this is my sign out as always. Boom. And I'm out.